Hello, uh, welcome to Center Church. My name is Justin Leach and I'm one of the pastors here and uh, I'm glad that you have decided to join us on this late service on this holiday weekend. I'm sure you've got cookouts planned or maybe like me, an early night to bed and a uh, grumpy neighbor. I'll be grumpy at my neighbors if they blow up fireworks too late because I got to get up in the morning. Um, no, I'm just kidding, but we are glad that you're here. I'm glad you're here worshiping. I'm one of the pastors here and we are going to be continue walking through the book of Mark together this week. But before we jump in, I want to share with you something that Pastor Josh and I have been thinking about, talking about, praying about, and sharing with you as a church family. Uh, we know that the past 18 months has left all of us just relationally dry and lonely. Uh, for 18 months, we saw people more on screens than in person. I mean, I could go through the list of all these different things, but you have heard it a hundred times. So as we pray and as we think about what's needed for our church family this summer, we have landed on just the, the idea of focusing on re-engaging relationally this summer. I just want to re-engage relationally. We have been separated. The church, as much as the greater society, has been impacted uh, by this social distancing and the space that we had to keep during the pandemic. So this summer, we just want to do some stuff to focus on re-engaging relationally together. There's a few ways that we're doing that organizationally as a church. A few things from the top we want to drop down so that you can re-engage relationally. We've moved. One thing, we've moved from three services back to two. So that allows us to spread out our services, spend a little bit more time mingling before and after and hopefully seeing some more people in the crossover of services uh, because if you go to the first and third, you never see some people for months and months at a time. So that's one thing. Another thing that we're doing is uh, coming up at the end of July, we're having a church picnic. So after both of the services on Sunday, July 25th, I think it's that weekend, we'll be spending some time together outside in the back, music playing, bring a dinner and a blanket, bring your family, and we'll have some, spend some time together just to give us an opportunity to re-engage relationally. Third, we're asking our missional communities uh, each week over the summer to intentionally alternate and to think about alternating Bible study with something like a family meal, just to spend some time informally together, knowing one another, eating a meal together, and diving deeper into relationships. So that's what we're doing, kind of from the church, asking you to consider doing that, some different things we're planning. But I also would ask that you would jump in organically and re-engage relationally. Ask somebody to go to coffee. Maybe it's somebody at church. Maybe it's somebody in your missional community that you don't know as well. Maybe it's a new face. But I would just invite you to take advantage of this summer. It's been a long time we've been apart. Get to know someone new or dive deeper into a relationship. The other thing I would say is just be here. Be here on Sundays, be at your missional community gatherings so that you can build relationships and re-engage and take advantage of the privilege and joy that is Christian family-like relationships because what Christ has done for us in being together. So I'd encourage you to that. What I want to do real quick is just pray and ask that God would bless this summer for us as we seek to re-engage relationally after a long, hard 18 months. So bow your heads and I'll pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you have won for us unity under the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bless our effort to re-engage relationally with one another as we seek to live out the family-like relationships that you call us to in the New Testament. I pray that you would help us to uh, get back to health relationally, that we would enjoy one another, and that we would honor you by knowing one another and loving one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. I grew up in southeastern North Carolina. All right. And southeastern North Carolina is known for handling its fair share of hurricanes. 
All right, every couple of years, you get a big hurricane that blows through, dumps a lot of water, blows a lot of wind, and causes a lot of damage. So my family moved there a little after 2000, and I missed a couple of the bigger hurricanes of the 90s, like Fran and Floyd, if you remember a couple of those. And I lived there for a while through middle school and high school, but by the time I left for college, I didn't really get to see some really big hurricane. After I left, more recently, we've had Matthew and Florence, but I was never really there for a big one. I was there when we had some close calls. We gathered supplies, got a bunch of milk and bread, and filled the tubs up with water in case stuff stopped working. We did all of that stuff, uh, but I was never there for a massive storm that actually hit us. What we know about storms is that storms reveal strengths and they reveal weaknesses. All right, storms reveal strengths and reveal, reveal weaknesses. Unfortunately, houses built with uh, weak materials or houses built in a weaker location or houses built on a weaker foundation are not going to stand up in a hurricane. They're going to be exposed by a storm. Are right, in the two stories that we're going to come across today as we continue our journey through Mark, Jesus and those around him are going to encounter some pretty violent storms. All right, the first that they're going to encounter is very similar to a hurricane. It's a storm at sea. And the second is going to be a, an equally violent storm, but it's going to be inside of a man. All right, in this passage, I hope that we will pick up some resources that we can use to make it through the inevitable storms that we are going to face. But more importantly, Jesus is going to reveal his character and how he responds and handles the storms that come upon him and those around him. So here's the main idea for today. And you can go ahead and write this down, type it in your phone if you're a note taker. Jesus is stronger than the storms in our lives. All right, Jesus is stronger than the storms in our lives. Jesus is stronger than the storms around you, the circumstances that you find yourself in, but Jesus is also stronger than the storms even inside you. All right, I'm going to pick up in Mark 4:35, read this first story, and then we'll pull out some ideas from it. Mark 4:35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, rebuked the wind in the sea, and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And he said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, after a long day of preaching and teaching and healing, Jesus called his disciples to leave from where they were and to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to continue his ministry. All right, and on the way, a sudden and ferocious storm overtakes them. All right, this type of storm was common back then. It's still common on the Sea of Galilee today. In fact, the sea sits about 700 feet below sea level, interestingly enough. And on all sides, it's surrounded because of that by higher elevation. And the differences in air temperature and the drafts of air cause these sudden squalls to come upon this lake. You can see it today still. The Greek word that's translated great windstorm there in verse 37 is actually the same word uh, used to talk about a hurricane. 
So this was no simple afternoon shower. This was just no summer heat lightning. This was a furious storm. Even for those common squalls on the Sea of Galilee, this one was a doozy. Or remember, the disciples, they are seasoned fishermen, right? Jesus said, come and follow me. What they leave behind? They left behind their, their fishing nets, right? They've been on this sea for a long time. They know how to handle themselves. This is their profession. And still, when they got encountered with this storm, this uniquely powerful storm, they were freaking out. Right, they were losing it. They were waking up Jesus and saying, help us. Don't you care that we are perishing? The, the waves were crashing over the side of the boat. The boat was filling up. This boat was likely about 17 feet long from biblical archaeologists' understanding. 17 feet long, maybe 6 feet wide in the middle. About 15 men could fit in there. So it's nothing uh, too powerful and impressive. They're not on a yacht here. Uh, but the, the, the boat is filling. They're in imminent danger of sinking. And this would mean a significant chance of death. Right? These seasoned fishermen could usually handle storms. They've been out there their whole lives, but in this case, they could not manage the terrible storm. The storm was stronger than them, and they were afraid. They were afraid. The storm was unmanageable. Have any of you been there? All right, maybe not a physical storm on a small boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, but have you been in a storm that seemed to be unmanageable? Maybe it's relational turmoil in your family. There's relationships that you'd always dreamed how they would be, and you hope that they one day will be, but for some reason, the relationships just are not being reconciled, and frustration and difficulty persists, and it just seems unmanageable, and you're afraid that you'll miss out on those family relationships you wish you could have. Maybe it's the sickness of a child, and you do not know what the next step is going to be to help your child get back to health. You're overwhelmed. You can't manage it on your own. You're afraid. Maybe it is insurmountable debt coupled with the loss of a job and the waves are just crashing over. I don't know what the storm in your life is, but I do know that all of us will face storms. All of us will come upon circumstances that we can't manage and that we can't control and will lead us to fear. Some of you might even be in a storm right now, I know somebody last service that was coming in after a handful of days at a hospital and a failed procedure after months and months of chronic pain. I know some of you are in storms right now. The storms of life may have overtaken you like them and you're not sure that you can manage it. But one piece of good news that we already have in this story is that the Bible is not silent on the realities of life. All right, the Bible is not just pie in the sky. Actually, it meets us in the real world where we have real trouble, real fear, real storms, real problems, real uncontrollable circumstances, and it offers us hope. What is that hope? As strong as the storm was, Jesus is stronger. All right, as strong as the storm was, we see that Jesus is stronger. When Jesus turns the great windstorm to a great calm in verse 39, as pastor and author Tim Keller points out, the infinite power of Jesus is put on display for us. All right, the infinite power of Jesus is put on display as he brings the great calm. There's two ways. One, we see Jesus' infinite power in his effectiveness. We see his infinite power and his effectiveness, right? The disciples are terrified. They run to Jesus. They wake him up in the midst of the raging storm, the howling winds, the crashing waves. They get him up. They say, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? We are about to die. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, like a little child, peace, be still. Jesus woke up from his nap. He rubbed his eyes. He spoke to the raging storm like a pesky child. And immediately the wind ceased and there was a great calm. 
All right, the wind, notice here, the wind didn't just stop, which could happen by coincidence, right? Wind kind of comes and goes in gusts and flurries. But even the surf was transformed from large crashing waves over the side of the boat to glass. It stopped churning. It was silent, still. Jesus effectively calmed the raging storm. He was showing off his infinite power. But not only do we see Jesus' strength in this effectiveness, we also see Jesus' strength, infinite power, communicated in his simplicity. Our simplicity, all Jesus said was peace, be still. There was no incantation to, there was no pleading with a higher power. All right, many ancient cultures, including the Jews, regarded the sea as a place where only God had sovereignty. In fact, a couple hundred years before Jesus, we have some recordings of some writings from the Jewish culture, and they were being oppressed by a pagan king at that time. And the king, in fact, claimed that he could control the sea. Pagan king, non-Jewish. And we have the writings of some Jewish people talking about the king's claim to be able to control the sea. All right, and those Jewish people, Jesus' people, a couple hundred years before he was there, this is what they said. They didn't accuse that king of pride. They didn't accuse that king of arrogance. They didn't accuse him of foolishness. They actually accused that king of blasphemy, right? They accused him of claiming to do what only God could do. You see, Jesus spoke simply, didn't call on a, on a higher power. He simply spoke, peace be still, and the wind and the sea obeyed. Jesus didn't call on a higher power because Jesus is the higher power. All right, Jesus did not call on a higher power because Jesus is the higher power. And just to draw us back as we're walking through the book of Mark, this is the thesis of the book of Mark. This is the case that the author Mark, through the eyes of Peter, is trying to prove for us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as Mark 1.1 says for us. Right? This is another building block in the case that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He stills the wind with effectiveness and simplicity, not calling to another higher power because he is the higher power. Right, there was a great storm, but Jesus is stronger than the storm and brought immediately with a word, a great calm. And the story, interestingly enough, wraps up by showing us the disciples' great fear. Or it's interesting, particularly, because the disciples' great fear, literally mega fear in the Greek, is present after the storm stops. Or they were scared during the storm. They were working hard. They were waking up Jesus, shouting and yelling and figuring stuff out. But after the storm, they were even more scared. Mega, mega scared is what the, the Greek says. That's my translation for you. Um, why is that the case? Why were they more scared after the storm was calmed than during the storm that was threatening their lives? Well, the disciples realized that Jesus is even more unmanageable than the storm. All right, the disciples realized that Jesus is even more unmanageable than the storm. They followed Jesus, like we often do, expecting, that, expecting him to keep them from storms. They would say, if you are the Messiah, you would have kept us from this. If you loved us, you would have moved us around the storm. When they see Jesus' power to calm the storm, coupled with the reality that he didn't use that power to deliver them from the storm, they are terrified because they realize that Jesus is more unmanageable than even the storm itself. And don't we respond the same way that they did to the storms in our lives? God, I was doing everything right. I was going to church. I was tithing. We were getting involved in a group. Why did she break up with me? God, I was doing everything right. If you loved me, you would, have, you would have kept me around the storm. You would do what I wanted to do. I would know, know what was going to come. God, I went to church every Sunday for a whole year. Why would you take my job away? I was doing the right thing. Do you care, God? Are you there? Because the storms 
are incredibly hard, because the storms often produce fear in us, we are prone to question God's goodness just like the disciples. And that leads us to our big takeaway from this story. Following Jesus does not mean you'll be exempt from the storms, but that he will be with you through the storms. Following Jesus does not mean you will be exempt from the storms, but that he will be with you through the storms. We see this throughout, scripture, throughout the scriptures, and, and one uh, particularly challenging passage is in John chapter 11. Jesus develops a relationship and a friendship with a, with a few people, a lot of people throughout his ministry, but there's one family made up of uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that he develops a unique relationship with. All right, and Jesus ends up actually hearing that Lazarus is very sick, and so they call to Jesus and say, hey, your friend's that guy that heals everybody. Call him and get him to come and heal you. And John 11 gives a very surprising response from Jesus to these people that he loves. I'll read a couple of verses for you. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, love all around. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Say, Jesus, if you loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, why didn't you go and heal Lazarus and keep him from death? Right in that moment, the circumstances would say, Jesus, you might say you love us, but you obviously don't. Because if you loved us and you could heal, you would come and deliver us from this storm and not make us walk through it. But Jesus comes days later after Lazarus dies. Right? They walk through the storm of suffering and pain and loss. And we know the glorious end of that story is that Jesus raises Lazarus. But what I want you to see is that Jesus doesn't keep his people from the storms. He promises to be with them through the storms. He does that with these people he loves, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Psalm 46 is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. This is what it says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There again is not a promise to avoid all problems from God to us, but a promise that God will be with his people in the midst of the storm. All right, at this point, I think it would be really helpful to walk through a quick biblical theology of storms, the biblical theology of trials. And what I want to give you is five reasons why trials might come into your life. I think this will be incredibly helpful as you're walking with others through the storms that they're going through, as you are in the midst of a storm, or as you are preparing to walk through the inevitable storms of life that are going to come. Here's five reasons. Uh, Pastor Todd Wagner down in Dallas, I got uh, these from him. Uh, but why do storms come? First, all right, first reason is oftentimes storms are the consequences of our sin or, sin or foolishness. All right, storms come because of our sin or foolishness. Proverbs 19, 2 and 3 says this, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Right? Sometimes we face storms and we face trials because we make sinful or unwise decisions. Storms come because of that. My family leaves because I have neglected them to advance in my career. I am anxious and unhealthy because I stay up way too late every night watching TV. I have loaded up on massive consumer debt and now I'm overwhelmed and underwater because I have lived above my means for far too long. Sometimes storms, trials, problems come into our lives because we make sinful decisions and we make unwise decisions. Another reason, second, sometimes storms come into our lives just as collateral damage of living in a broken and evil world. 
Sometimes storms come into our life just as collateral damage of living in a broken and evil world. We can take heart knowing that everything that happens filters through the sovereign hands of our good and our gracious God. But at times, we face these problems that are just collateral damage of living in a broken world. Think of the biblical examples of Joseph and of Job. Right? Both of these men are presented as righteous, making good decisions, doing the right things. But because of circumstances around them, they're inflicted with pain and suffering and incredible trials, false accusations, time in prison, the loss of property and family. They are losing so much just because of the brokenness of the world and collateral damage that comes from it. Third, sometimes we face trials, sometimes we face storms for the sake of others. For the sake of others, sometimes God is leading you through an incredibly difficult trial to prepare you to be a blessing to someone else who is going to walk through a similar trial. The Apostle Paul talks about how he has learned to find comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of his incredible sufferings, and he wants to pass it on to the churches, how they too can find comfort in the gospel. I know people in our church family who regularly meet with others who have in the past walked through a suffering so that they can share their empathy, their unique empathy on a situation, their wisdom and their lessons learned through a difficulty and a storm that they went to. So sometimes the Lord is leading you through a trial for the sake of someone else and he knows it's coming. So he's preparing you to do good for them. Fourth, sometimes you go through trials and sufferings to deepen your character. You may face trials because of what uh, theologians have often called a severe mercy, a severe mercy. The Bible talks about sufferings and trials sometimes as a refining fire, right? In order to remove the impurity from some metals that are taken out of the earth, we need to put those metals through fire so that the impurities, what that metal is mixed with, can be melted off or evaporated off of the other, of the other metals so that what you have coming out of the fire and out of the pressure is a more refined metal. It's a more pure form of that metal. At times, the Lord is refining you by passing you through the storm of a trial, by passing you through the fire, and is creating you deeper, creating in you deeper Christ-likeness, deeper faithfulness, deeper joy, deeper longing for the eternity of heaven that is to come. Sometimes the Lord is graciously wounding us in a severe mercy to make us more beautiful, to make us better than we would ever be, and he's actually taking something out of us that's more dangerous to us than the fire he's passing us through. Sometimes in a severe mercy, the Lord refines us with fire. He's deepening our character. And fifth, the fifth reason we might pass through a storm is I don't know. All right, I do not know. At times, it is truly impossible to tell what God is up to. Many times, we just cannot know how the sovereign hand of God is moving. We will go through times and periods of suffering and of waiting, and of difficulty, and without getting an answer, the why is incredibly hard. And church, do me a favor. If someone is hurting and in pain, you don't have to convince them exactly in the moment of what the Lord is doing every single time. You know which four of the previous ones they are. You tell them exactly what God is doing. Look, I know Romans 8.28. The Lord is working together everything for the good of his people. That is true. But sometimes when you're sitting across the table with someone who is really hurting, they just want a friend to cry with. 
They want somebody to support them and to hold their arms up so they can continue to walk in faithfulness. They need to know that there's a community that loves them that will fall back on them. So you don't need to prove what God is doing to them. Sometimes we can truly say, the Lord may be doing a number of things. The Lord may be doing one of these things, but I genuinely don't know why you're passing through this. This is an incredibly hard period of suffering. This trial, I see why it's instilling in you fear, and I don't know. And in those times, we don't know the why. I find this quote to be an incredibly helpful reminder. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. There's going to be times when we do not know the answer to what God is doing. We won't be able to trace his hand and see what he is working out. We just won't know. We won't have that answer. But in those moments, we can look to the cross of Christ, know his kindness, and trust his heart when we can't see his hand. You may or may not know why the storms are present in your life. When you get the storms to come, you may or may not know at that point. Um, Oftentimes, it's a combination of many, if not all, of these reasons. But we do know storms come and storms go. As they do, Jesus, the Son of God, is infinitely strong, infinitely strong, stronger than all of the storms, and he will be with us through them. All right, so what do we do? What do we do in the midst of that? We fight. We fight to remember his kindness and his wisdom and his strength in the midst of the storms. We fight to remember that even though my circumstances and the storm I find myself in might paint a picture of reality that leads me to believe that God does not care about me, that he's not wise to do the right thing, or that he's not strong enough, we reject that belief and we center what we believe on the word of God, that he is kind and that he is wise and that he is strong. We remember that and we cling to it in the midst of the storms. The second thing that we do is we lean on one another in times of storms. We lean on one another in our storms. God has graciously saved us, not just to himself, but also into a family to walk through life with. So in times of storms, we get to lean on one another. We get to receive encouragement from the truth of God's word into our life from our brothers and sisters in Christ who have or have not walked through those sufferings before, but can remind us of the truth of the scriptures, the kindness and the goodness and the mercy and the wisdom of God when nothing seems to make sense. We remember his kindness and we lean on one another. There are so many different storms that we could be walking through. It could be right now. It could be in the future. But we all will walk through storms. And this story is pointing us to some of those resources in Christ that we can have to walk through the storms faithfully. All right, we're going to transition into the next story. So we're going to pick up in Mark 5, 1. We're going to read that story. I'll give you a little bit on the front end. And we're going to read the whole passage, 20 verses all at once. This is a vivid and powerful story of God's work in the life of a person. All right, this passage is one of the longest continuous stories in the gospel. It's extremely vivid. It's filled with great lessons on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Uh, So I'm going to read the whole passage, pull some principles out. But here's what we're going to see. After the disciples traveled through the storm around them of circumstances, they cross the sea and quickly encounter a man with an equally violent storm raging inside of him. Uh, We're going to see how Jesus is is strong over both the storms around us and inside us. So I'm going to start in Mark 5.1 and read us this story. Mark 5.1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. 
For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my, le- my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, be- they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. All right, there is a lot of incredible lessons for discipleship. There's a lot of rich teaching available in this story, but for the sake of time, we're going to have to pass over a lot of the questions that you have about what just went down. When we look at this man, we probably, if you're like me, struggle to relate to him at all, right? Most of us have never seen a demonic situation like this, much less had a demon cast out of us. We might have a friend whose church is kind of more comfortable with this type of thing and has some stories about some demons, but my guess is that this uh, situation is a bit foreign to us. In reality, though, I want you to see that we are much more like this man than we would all like to think. How so? All right, the difference between us and him is more a question of quantity than quality. All right, the difference between us and him is more a question of quantity than quality. This man is a portrayal of the fullest expression of individual brokenness that has come from giving himself to evil over time and time and time again. Right? He is subjugated by a legion, literally an army of demons. He has given himself over to evil and is facing a great cost for it. But every one of us, if we are honest, at times, we give ourselves over to evil as well, right? It is not a question of quality. We do the same thing. It's just a quantity. He's got a legion, and we sin in other ways. The dividing line between good and evil runs through every single human heart. It's not good guys out there, bad guys in here, or good guys in here and bad guys out there. Every human heart, dividing line of evil runs right down it. Although we are not naked in the cemetery cutting ourselves, we, like him, fall into some of the painful consequences of choosing evil in our lives. He's the furthest expression, but we have all tasted it. And look at where his sin has led him. It's led him to moral callousness, right? He is unclothed, he is immodest, and he just does not care. It's led him to social isolation. He's living on his own, away from a community that he can flourish in. He's, it's led him to self-harm, right? He's cutting himself, destroying his life. We aren't naked, we're not chained in the tombs, but if we are honest for a moment, sometimes our patterns are nearly as destructive as as his. Just look at moral callousness, right? Sin has a progressive effect on our lives. Of this man, it says no one could bind him anymore. That means at one point it wasn't as bad, but he has gotten worse. Sin uh, progressed in his life to lead him to be more and more calloused to goodness over time. We see this story play out in our culture all too much, right? It starts with unchecked, lustful thoughts. It leads to 
a pornography addiction. It moves to a flirtatious relationship at work or a dating app on the phone, and it ends in an affair that destroys a family. There's a progressive effect to our sin that is devastating. Sin always promises more than it can give. It takes more than you're willing to pay, and it always leaves you coming back for more. Sin has a progressive effect in his life and in our lives. Next, social isolation. Our sin destroys our relationship with other people. It destroys relationship with other people. I saw this firsthand in my life. In my first couple years of college before I started following Jesus, I made some terrible decisions that I carry with shame and guilt to this day, uh, though by the grace of God I've been transformed. I, I lost friendships with my crew, my best friends from freshman year because of some of those decisions that I made. I got to see firsthand how my sin and my choices caused me to walk in social isolation, experience the pain of that. I relate to this man in that way. His sin, giving himself over to evil, has led him to isolation. Maybe you different ways in your life can experience that as well. Maybe your marriage is strained and you don't have relational connection like you should because of sin that you're walking in. Sin has consequences that leads us to relational isolation. And finally, self-harm. This man is naked in the tombs. He became a danger not just to others, but to himself, cutting himself. Our sin, it destroys us eating us from the inside out like a cancer. In the short term, we experience guilt and shame, but in the long term, the habits that we form as we choose evil begin to shape us, and we become more and more like the habits that we choose in sin. We give ourselves over to evil, and it harms us by shaping us over time. In Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 3, Paul describes all humanity apart from Christ. And it is clear when he teaches uh, these three things, that we are dead in our sin, that we are living under the influence of evil powers apart from Christ, and that by nature, apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. We are not so different from this man after all. He is the fullest expression, but it is a picture of all of us. It's not him and us. It is there, but for the grace of God go I. We are prone to devastating consequences of sin in our life, and we need the same saving that Jesus offered him. This story is an incredible message of hope for us. An incredible message of hope. This man who was walking in the fullest expression of a hardened heart by evil is saved by Jesus. No matter where we have been or what we have done, this story points to hope for all of us. In the very next scene, this man who is dominated by evil comes to fall at Jesus' feet and beg him and plead with him for mercy. And Jesus gives it to him, right? And just like the last story, Jesus shows his infinite power and casts out the demon. Simple and effective. Look at what he says. Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And if you remember from before, it is that same exact thing, effective and simple. Rather than following the normal pattern of casting out a demon by uh, calling to a higher power to come through and help him out, Jesus just speaks of his own authority. Even the demons, if you notice in what they say, they say, I adjure you by God, right? They're, they're doing a reverse demon exorcism. Demons asking Jesus to do something. Jesus does the same thing, except he doesn't call to a higher power because Jesus is the higher power. Jesus is stronger than the violent storms inside of this man, and he casts the demons out of him. The demons go into the pigs, which immediately run down and drown in the sea, showing the intent of the evil is always to destroy us, its host. Not surprisingly, the herdsmen in charge of the pigs, no longer with the herd to look out for, run into the city, run into the country, bring everybody back uh, to tell them what happened, and they return, and they see this man who has been isolated, immoral, self-destructive for years, 
sitting and clothed in his right mind. He is completely transformed, completely different. This story of transformation is a message of hope. This story of transformation is an incredible message of hope. No matter how violent the storms are inside you, Jesus is stronger. No matter where you have been or what you have done, no matter where you are or what you are doing, Jesus is stronger than the violent storms that might be going on inside of you. Do you think that you are too far gone for Jesus? You're not. You're not. The scriptures tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to straighten it out. He didn't wait for us to clean it up. But while we were sinners, Christ gave himself for us. You might say, Justin, you don't know the shame, the guilt, and the sin that is on my, on my record. And I would respond, you're right. I don't. It is probably really, really bad, but I know that Jesus' grace is greater. I know that Jesus' power is greater. And as you come to him saying, I've reached the end of myself, I see how I've sinned against you, a holy God. I want to receive the gift of grace that is salvation through your blood. And I am at the end of myself. I want you as my Lord and my Savior. I've seen where falling myself has got me. That is a deal Jesus takes every time by his grace. No matter where you are, no matter what you've been, and no matter what you've done, Jesus accepts it every time. Not only, though, can you be saved and restored through a relationship with Christ and his infinite power, you can also be deployed to be impactful for his kingdom. Look at this. It's an incredible truth. After Jesus transforms him, the man returns to Jesus and begs to stay with him. But Jesus instead commissions him as the first ever missionary. He commissions him as the first ever missionary. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had, on, has, and how he has had mercy on you. Right? The future pastors, future church planters, future missionaries who are going to take the gospel around the world might look a lot like this man right now. Right? It might be young professionals living up the party, hookup, self-fulfillment culture that America pushes on us. Right? It might be college students giving themselves to the God of career and success and making money and rushing a fraternity or a sorority. This man is effective in sharing the news of Christ, not in spite of his past, but because of it. Right? Jesus is strong enough not just to save you, but to transform your life and to send you out on mission for his glory. Do you think that your past disqualifies you to be used by Jesus? You're wrong. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament. He persecuted the church of God for a living. He killed Christians and destroyed churches. And God used him in a mighty way. Your messy story, your broken background, your greatest shame is not a liability to you being deployed by Jesus for advancing his kingdom and to using your life for exalting him. But it's actually an opportunity for God to display his power and his grace through a transformed life. These people marvel. They marvel when they see at the incredible transformation of this man who has encountered the incredible power of Jesus. They marvel. They'll marvel at your story too. Jesus is stronger than the storms inside you. He can transform the most hardened sinners to his most impactful missionaries. When you truly see Jesus, you are going to be filled with fear at times because you are going to realize that he is more unmanageable even than the storms that come around you and even the storms inside you. He's more powerful than the storms. He's more unpredictable than the storms. So how do we trust that Jesus is worth following if he is more unpredictable, he is more powerful, and even at times causes in us greater fear than the storms themselves? Why would we choose the storm of Jesus over the storms that life throws at us when we don't know what Jesus is going to do? 
We don't know what deliverance is going to look like, and he is not always going to align with the things that we want. In fact, at times, he's going to lead us into storms. Why would we choose him? Why would we trust him? We will only trust Jesus when we know that the storm of his infinite power is also the storm of his infinite love. Or you will only trust Jesus when you know the storm of his infinite power is also the storm of his infinite love. Look, think back to the first story we walked through, the calming of the storm with me. Scholars point out that this story by Mark is a mirror image to Jonah chapter 1. Uh, if we have any theological astute people in here, you might have picked up on that. Jonah chapter 1, the story is incredibly similar. Um, but it does have uh, some difference at the end. So how is it similar? All right, we have Jesus and Jonah. They both find themselves on the boat with some sailors. All right, also another similarity. Jesus and Jonah find themselves on a boat with some other sailors, and they enter a vicious, powerful storm. All right, Jesus and Jonah both sleep during the storm. All right, in both stories, the sailors go to Jesus or Jonah and wake them up and say, what are you doing? Help us right? In both stories, a powerful act of divine uh, mercy stills the seas. In both stories, the sailors are more afraid after this act of divine power than before it. But there's one pretty big and significant difference. In Jonah, they calm the storm by throwing Jonah into the sea. Whereas in the story we have today, Jesus calms the storm by speaking a word. But this difference is meant to point us to the, infinite, to the storm of Jesus' infinite love. You see, Jesus calmed the storm with a word on that day because he was foreshadowing that he was going to dive in to the ultimate storm that we face one day at the cross. Jesus was going to deal with every storm that could ever uh, come and put them to death once and for all. He calmed the storm on the boat with a word, but one day he would calm the storms in our hearts and our lives by diving into the ultimate storm at the cross. You see, he dealt with the only storm that could truly sink us, the debt that we owe a holy God because of our wrongdoing and sin. He, the perfect son of God, went to the cross, not deserving to die, but throwing himself into the storm of God's wrath, his righteous and holy wrath for sin out of love for us. See, Jesus didn't avoid the storm and send Jonah into it. Jesus was saving himself to take on the ultimate storm. When you see and you understand the love of Jesus for you to send him to dive into the ultimate storm for you, when that's etched into the core of your being, when you know that you know that you know that Jesus loves you because he dove into the storm that you should have gone into so that you could escape it, then, and only then, and to the measure that that's etched into you, you will be able to trust his hand and trust his heart in the smaller storms that we face now. The storm of Jesus' infinite power that's unmanageable and terrifying is also the storm of Jesus' love that he proved once and for all for us at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son to give himself for us. We thank you that though we could never live up to what you expect from us, 
though we could never live up to this act of service that Jesus did by giving himself for us, you gave him as a substitute and a sacrifice for us. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to dive into the storm of God's wrath so that through faith in you, we could be delivered from that wrath once and for all. We thank you that though we were on a ship that was destined for sinking and death, you plucked us up. You saved us from our death and you gave us new life. Father, I pray, asking you, I know people are walking through storms. I know there are struggles. I know there are pains. I know it's hard to trust your heart when we can't see your hand. I pray for our church family that you would help us to know your love. Help us to know your love, to anchor our lives on your love, to know that you are stronger and to trust you in the midst of whatever you are leading us through in our lives. God, help us, help our church family to remain faithful, to hold on and to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray.